Hello, my friends. Robbie O here. Before we get on to the show itself, I want to take a few minutes to reflect because this is episode 100. Can you believe it? Episode 100 of the Stimulus Podcast. And it's also my 18th year podcasting, podcasting without interruption. That started out on my brother's show in late 2006, right around Christmas 2006. And that was when podcasts were just this weird fringe thing. Nobody knew what they were. Then through ERCast, my own clinical show, then EMRAP, and then Hippo's ERCast, and now this show. And over the past three years of doing this, so, I mean, so much has been said. We've covered a lot of ground, and I think there's still a lot yet to say. And as I'm looking back, I've had a lot of professional reinventions over the past few decades, from clinician to educator, and then what I'm doing now, which involves a lot of education for clinicians, and then a practice of one-on-one coaching where I get to use the years of clinical experience, years of interviewing and listening, and then turn it into something completely new. And I get asked a lot if I miss practicing clinical medicine. For those of you who don't know, I retired from that a few years back after 20 years of community practice. And I'll say that there are parts of it that I guess I could call missing, but I'll also say not really because it was just kind of all part of a continuing evolution because I'll never not have had that experience and it informs so much of what I do, who I work with and how I approach it. I guess if there was one thing that would be a palpable void after leaving clinical medicine, it would be the personal connection. You know, personal connection, working with someone to overcome a problem. I mean, that's that's what you do with patients, what we do with patients. And I think that's one reason that I'm now in my current profession, because it's such a profoundly fulfilling experience. And when people leave medicine, you often hear them say, yeah, you know, I, I do miss the patients, but I don't miss the BS. That's probably true of any job where there's fulfilling and frustrating aspects. And some of you have been listening to my stuff since the very beginning. I know that there are listeners to this podcast who have heard me in one form or another since 2006. And those of you came a little after that, then after that, and those who've just discovered this podcast. And whenever you came in, it's just so great to have you here. And I hope that you find some use and value in stimulus. I'll tell you why I do this show. It started out just because I wanted to learn more about the topics that we talk about. I want to support clinician well-being and just felt this drive to help get people unstuck and decrease some of the seeming ever-increasing friction. You know, it's so much harder to do things and get things done. The ever-increasing friction that comes with working in medicine. I mean, that's still there. That spark still exists. And of course, now there's a professional element because connection through the show is where most of my coaching clients come from. But even without those, I think about it, I'd still be doing it because I just feel so passionately about the mission here. And, you know, there's a mission, right? There's supporting the clinician well-being. There's the anti-burnout. There's the career longevity, all that stuff. But reflecting on it, I think really the core premise of this show is about you, is that you are incredibly valuable. You listening right now. And this show allows me to remind you of that. And hopefully even for you to remind yourself of it. Going forward with this show, 
I'm going to grow it, growing it in a lot of different ways. You've already heard on the past few episodes, the intro promo about the workshop that Scott Weingart and I are doing at the end of May at Essentials Emergency Medicine. That's a one-off half-day course. But bigger than that, Scott and I have been working for the past year, creating a framework for something. Oh my God, I'm so excited about this is the most excited I've ever been about anything professionally. And that's saying something. There is nothing like this in existence. It is the flameproof course. It is specifically made for emergency and acute care clinicians. And this course blends what Scott and I learned in 40 combined years of emergency and critical care practice, as well as the most important skills, techniques, approaches, and mindsets that we use in our one-on-one coaching sessions. And not that we're stopping that one-on-one aspect of our careers, but the challenge that we've both found is that it is impossible to scale one-on-one coaching. It is incredibly potent, but one-on-one time is a very limited resource. So we are launching a small cohort six-month course where we will be teaching live in interactive sessions every two weeks. And this is the first official announcement of it, I think. I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe I announced it before and I, I actually stole my own thunder. I don't know, who cares? Registration for it is now open. There's a link in the show notes to the Flameproof website where you can read about it, you can learn about it, you can look at the course content. We try to put it all out there. So it's not, oh, what am I getting? We don't want to make it a mystery. It's like, here is exactly what we're going to do. Here's exactly what it's going to be, what you're going to get. You can see how it all works. And I'm not trying to create any sense of scarcity by saying that the space is limited. I'm just saying that we intentionally keep it to a particular size because the teaching is conversational. It's interactive. And, and you guys know, you've been in these like massive Zoom meetings that just, you know, kind of get unwieldy. That's not what we want to do here. This sounds intriguing to you. Check it out. First cohort starts September, 2023. And we did that so that it would be after summer vacation. The kids went back to school, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, I'm on my August road trip or whatever. So September, 2023, cohort one of the Flameproof course launches. And our goal is to help you level up your experience at work, give your career the longevity that you'd like, and then have all of that translate into the rest of your life. One more thing. I know you're actually, you're never supposed to have more than one call to action ever. And so I'm just like violating this core premise. But when you hit the show notes for this episode, you will see a link there for a listener survey to let me know who you are, what I'm doing well, what I can do better, maybe even what you'd like to hear in future shows. It's all in there. Takes about two minutes. Thanks in advance. Here we go. Our guest today is Stimulus fan favorite, and I know that because you tell me, and when I say you, I mean listeners, not our guest. He is faculty at the Center for Medical Simulation, part-time denizen of the mountains of New Hampshire, featured in one of our recent newsletters while he was the featured spotlight You last heard him on episode 93. Feedback is hard to receive, neither harder to give. He is Dr. Lon Setnick. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me back. Such a delight, Lon. All right. Well, you know what? Actually, in our last episode, you gave me some impromptu feedback on how I prepared for the show. How did I do it? How did I do on this one? How did I do my compared to the last one? How was my preparation? You know, it's interesting. We both actually prepared differently this time. And I think. I was actually thinking about that. The best 
feedback has, you know, is, it's a two-way conversation, right? And yeah. so, I think we both got changed by it. So, I prepared a lot more for this. Tell me more. Oh, well, last time I was also a participant in not having created an outline. And so, as I proposed this conversation, I also sent you an outline. Boy, did you. Let's jump into it. The topic today is listening. And you sent me a blog post in progress. It kind of reminds me of like looking at in it like a sci-fi movie, the the scaffolding and a spaceport and the 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 starship's framework is being built. Like I got to see that. And I'm looking through this and right in the beginning you say this thing. I like I have never heard this before that listening is a procedure. What do you mean by that? Well, I think a procedure is something that is a set of actions designed to get you an outcome. And we have been trained that there are physical procedures, intubation, putting in a central line, et cetera. And we, we learn them and we do them in a repeated fashion and train on them in order to get a certain outcome. And I think you can view listening as exactly the same thing. It's a, it's a set of actions that we can train on and we can learn, and then we do them repeatedly to get a certain outcome. When I'm thinking about procedures like a chest tube, where you know, there's a clear outcome that you're looking for and there are clear complications, is it possible to measure, to measure, right? We want to measure outcome. Is it possible to measure the quality of listening? I guess that begs an even deeper question of like, how is quality listening defined? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And actually, that's part of what led me to think about this as an idea. One of the challenges for me has always been, what's the target when you're thinking about improving a procedure? What's the target that tells you whether you are listening properly? You know, the target when you're putting a chest tube in is that rush of air or seeing that hopefully non-pulsatile blood come out. And so it's often pretty clear how you've done. And for the first time, I came across an idea that, that helped me think there could be a clear target of listening that would help me understand if I'd done a good job or not. And I came across that in the book on actually on negotiation by the chief FBI hostage negotiator, Chris Voss, called Never Split the Difference. It's really a great communication book. And the section on listening is all about getting to the other person saying the words, that's right, or even better, that's exactly right. So I've kind of developed this as a, well, I've taken his idea and ported it to, to my work in the ED and found that it's a really great target to understand whether I've done a good job listening or not. There have been many efforts to try to define good listening on a technical aspect. For me, this is the one that really resonates. Seek to understand. That is listening. And the question is, how do you know that you've understood? And it's your work to try to understand, but only they can tell you if you have done the work. So this idea that they have actively acknowledged that they have been heard by saying, that's right. That's the thing that really caught my attention because now I had a target. My goal is get them to say, that's exactly right. I'm thinking of all of the procedures I've learned and all the procedures you've, which well, probably the same procedures, but you know, 
you know, procedures I learned in med school, the procedure in residency, and even the you know, first half of my attending hood. I mean, I was learning procedures all through it. Listening was definitely not one of them. That was not a procedure that was focused. And it was something that, you know, personally, I think you learn to focus on as you develop in your career, but it's not something that is truly focused on like, here's something important for you to structurally learn. Right. But when we look at what's associated with a positive patient experience and probably even a positive personal experience at work, I think, I mean, listening's got to rank high up there. I totally agree. And I, I want to tell a really short story. Right after I, I read this book and came up with this target, I put it into action. I was working in an emergency department and a patient came in. She was kind of a, a 60s um, with a respiratory infection. It, and what reminded me of it was, was your recent post on the antibiotic conversation. And she came in, she had actually been to an urgent care and she wanted an antibiotic. And what she told me was the urgent care didn't do anything for me. And I saw their record and they did a COVID test, a flu test, an RSV test, and a chest x-ray. And she left there thinking they didn't do anything for me. So I heard this and I started my goal for getting to that's exactly right. So I, I asked her, you know, what are you hoping to get out of this visit? And she said, uh, I need an antibiotic. And I said, well, tell me more. Why do you need an antibiotic? And she said, you know, my husband has Parkinson's and we have planned a trip to Kilimanjaro and we're going to go to a safari and hike around the base of Kilimanjaro. And we've been planning this for a year and a half. And now I got this thing and I'm coughing my brains out and I can't go on this trip coughing. And I said, wow, that's really hard. You know, it sounds like you're really anxious about getting other people sick on this trip. And she said, that's exactly right. I can't get all the older folks that are on this trip sick. And I said, well, you know, thanks for letting me know. And I had my boom, my gold star. I heard that's exactly right. I examined her. <laughs> you know, I looked I mean, at her your, ears. Your, your yeah. dopamine and serotonin oh, release must yeah. have been just stratospheric. Uh, yeah. Are you familiar with uh, tiny habits? The idea of shine? Yeah. 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 You had so the, I got the yeah, shine yeah. at that moment, right? And so all I did was examine her and I'm listening to her lungs. I said, you know, your lungs sound good. Your ears look good. Your throat looks good. You know, I think this is a viral infection and you're going to keep coughing, but you're not going to be contagious. And she said, thank you so much. You've helped me so much. You really understood me. And I did her discharge and she walked out. And on the way out, she thanked me again. And I was reflecting on that. She told me the urgent care didn't do anything for her. And they ran four tests and discharge her. And I did a history and physical and discharge her. And she felt that she was taken care of. So for me, it was a really great example of how we can apply the goal of active listening as a way of you know, helping ourselves feel good that we understood a patient because there's a really different interaction from a patient who says, I'm about to take the last big trip with my husband who has Parkinson's to Africa and I don't want to get the people sick on the trip. That's a very different conversation to understand than this person wants antibiotics. It was really uh, one of those pivotal moments for me that there's something important here that we can strive for. When I think about the negative experiences that I've had in healthcare, especially when I've been with family members, 
the negativity has almost always come because it's just not listening. There's just an agenda and they want to present the agenda. Okay, here's the answer. Here's the agenda. And how do you strike the right balance? Because so you just taught her something, right? You you gave her self-information and we do see ourselves as teachers, teachers for other clinicians, staff, students, especially patients. And we do have special knowledge that they are either coming to us for, or we have the depth to transmit or both. And in many ways, that special knowledge, our special knowledge, our ability to teach it is our value proposition. And where is the balance? How does listening tie into this? It's the step that gets them ready to hear our side. And I think one of the things you're talking about is that we go into as patients and family members, we go into medical experiences already with a barrier between us and the clinician. We're worried. Uh, I had this experience a couple of years ago uh, with a family member who had a terminal diagnosis and I was anxious the whole trip. What's it going to be like to talk to this specialist? Are they going to respect you know, my family members' wishes and how they want to be treated? So we and our patients enter into the conversation on guard with our defense shields up. And the way we can prepare people to be ready to hear our side is by us being ready to hear their side first. We actually have to model this in the conversation before we get to say our side. And the reason for that is in a power differential conversation or social interaction, the person with higher authority can only affect the social dynamics of the conversation by modeling the behavior that they want the other person to do. So the beginning of the conversation has to be us being open to hearing their reality, and then they can open up to hearing our reality by us modeling it first. Tell me about naive realism and how that connects with this. That was a, that was a new term for me. Yeah. It, so naive realism is a version of, um, you know, we're all the hero of our own story. And the idea behind it is that each of us believes that our view is reality and that other people have a biased view. And if they just could see and know the things that we see and know, they would actually come to exactly the same conclusion that we have. And the reason why it's naive is because it's just not true. It's not true that by giving a patient our data about antibiotics and viral respiratory infections, will they come to see the world the way we see it? In fact, they generally already know that before they come in. And so when we tell them, when we give them the solution, which is information, the way we see it, it just falls on, on deaf ears because we haven't heard their reason for not already believing that. You know, they've heard that before. I was listening to our marriage counselor being interviewed about some of the core aspects of his job. And I, I can imagine that he is seeing a lot of people being the hero of, of their own story. And he said that one common refrain that he will bring up in sessions has to do with listening. I mean, clearly, I mean, in your relationships, in your foundational relationships, is anything more critical? Is anything more critical? And he asks his clients when he sees these events happening and they're talking to each other to say, hey, are you listening to understand or are you just reloading your response? 
the reloading is such a great idea. I, I tend to think that there's kind of two modes of listening that we can be in. This, this wasn't my idea, but it really resonated with me. One is, is listening to understand, and we can unpack that a little bit. But the other one is, is listening to win. And so a lot of times we listen for what's wrong in what somebody else is saying, instead of trying to understand their point of view first, and then taking their point, their point of view and separating them from it and putting it out there for us both to examine. You know, I imagine that their point of view, I could like hold in my hand and my job is to catch it and move it away from them. So it's no longer part of their identity. And now we both can look at this point of view together. I can only do that if they actually say what it is. And a lot of us actually, we don't know our point of view until we have a chance to say it. There's this fantastic saying, which is uh, thoughts are untangled through lips and pencil tips. And the idea is we actually don't know what we think until we get to say it. And so when we force the conversation to them, and then we listen and we listen with our whole body to try to understand what they're saying, what the content is, and then what they're experiencing, what their emotions are by watching them, by seeing what their, the physical changes are that they go through. A lot of times when people talk to doctors, they will touch their neck. That's like the unofficial, I'm guarding myself from a threat move, you know? Yeah. And people are anxious when they're touching their neck. And so when you're watching for what, what their body is telling you, and you can name both the content and the emotion that they're displaying. You separate them from it and you get to examine it. And that, that listening to understand the experience that they're describing, not just the words that they're using, is I'm going to contrast that with listening to win. Listening to win is what I do when you and I are in an argument and I'm looking for anything that you're doing wrong that I can use to prove that you are incorrect. One of the challenges is we enter into these conversations with our patients oftentimes in a listening to win mode um, because we already are primed that they want this unnecessary antibiotic and my job is to win this conversation. Where might listening to win be appropriate? And and I'm thinking because so we're talking about this as if listening to understand is the real apex of this procedure, mm-hmm. the procedure of listening. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there is a moment when you do want to bring out that broadsword and shield and be like, hey, it's go time. Listening to win. The juggernaut is here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the most common place for listening to win to be effective is actually when somebody is trying to teach you how to do something. In those moments, you are looking for what is it that might be in that you see differently. And so you're doing this like analysis. Let's say they're trying to teach you how to put a central line in and they tell you, you know, you really want to pull the skin tight. And you might say, well, yeah, but my experience when I pull the skin tight is that that can occlude the vein a little bit. So if it's an IJ, do I really want to pull the skin tight or do I want to just put just enough pressure where I can see with the ultrasound, pro- whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. So that's a place where you're really trying to get at the details and you're trying to pick apart the details so you can understand them better. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> We're talking about listening to win. <laughs> you just, that point got you to understanding. Well, uh, what I'm doing is in, in that moment, I'm trying to 
make sure that every single detail that you're saying, I end up agreeing with at the end. And so we are going to struggle with those details together. Okay. I'm not looking for what emotion you're displaying when you're trying to teach me how to put the central line in. I'm looking to make sure that I have clarified all of the parts that we disagree. Does that make sense? It makes sense, sort of, uh, because I also see that there's getting to a common ground of understanding rather than positing your viewpoint, that here will be the dominant viewpoint that takes the day. And oh, okay. that's listening to win. Like if you are in an argument, oftentimes you're listening to win. Mm. I mean, that's why arguments keep going on is because nobody's listening and you're just kind mm. of, you know, throwing rocks. Mm-hmm. And I think about a, let's say, discordant consultant call where the consultant and the consulting clinician don't see things the same way and it's going south. Mm-hmm. And granted, you want to understand where they're coming from, but you also want the best thing to happen for this patient. And it's possible that what they're saying is the case, but classic thing is with cardiologists and hey, cardiologists out there, I know there's at least one listening. Sorry, baby. Is uh, you have a patient with chest pain, they have a concerning EKG, the chest pain is not getting better, the trope's coming out, you do the echo and the wall motion. It's like, oh, they probably need to go to the cath lab. And the cardiologist says, ah, just admit them to medicine, I'll see him in the morning, or something like that. Or it's like a, it's probably a STEMI under the borderline, eh, just eh, kind of work avoidant. And there, I feel like you might be listening to win eventually. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I worry that in these social dynamic moments where this this is a negotiation moment, I hate to say it, yeah, especially in community and regional hospitals, maybe slightly less so when you're in a quaternary hospital where you won't deal with this person again for a really long time. But I tend to think that we have this goal of winning this particular conversation. And the truth is that this conversation takes place in a social milieu which will continue in the future and actually will spread to their colleagues. So I always think that there's a little trade-off here with trying to win this conversation versus trying to negotiate the best outcome. And I view those differently. I, actually, my response to those moments is to double down on the understanding. And so my response might be something like, So it sounds like you're telling me that this 54-year-old guy with pretty typical chest pain, dynamic EKG changes, and a rising troponin is stable for the hospitalist service without a procedure tonight, even though I can't control his pain and his troponin is still rising. Like I'm reflecting back what I'm hearing from him as opposed to, because, because I want him to actually really clarify for me why that's an okay response. I haven't yet heard why that's an okay answer. Do you know that you just threw down one of the core verbal judo techniques right there? The oh. sword, that was the sword of insertion, which empathetically interrupts a conversation so that you can pause and reflect back what they're saying. And, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because I think that listening to win, when you have that viewpoint, it closes you up. Yes. And as you were saying all that, I think I've, uh, I have a talk on navigating the difficult consultant. The first half of the talk is about you, about you being prepared, you bringing your A game, you know, how you present yourself so that the 
interaction is least likely to fail. And then you get the difficult response, which can be demeaning, can be obstructive, can be insult, or all of the things, or discordant with what modern medical practice would suggest, or any of these things, which really can get your cackles up. So you need to be aware of that. You need to be calmer. And when you are in that calmer, less sympathetically activated state, then you can engage empathy. And one of the very first things to do in these situations is, I don't know, is it okay, is it okay if I go on a, a bit of a... Uh, please, yeah. You're being presented with this situation. And when you are listening to win, and listeners, we're going to get back to listening to understand. Don't you worry. We're going to get in there. When you are listening to win, you are actually accepting an invitation into this drama, into this dance. And so the first step when you feel that you are getting sucked into it is to decline the invitation. I am feeling frustration and anger start to rumble. Let me, let me just take a breath and decline this and be rather than judgmental about this person. You th and you're thinking in your own mind, oh, what a dipstick. Come on. Just, just be discerning about the situation. What are my next steps? And then validate. Well, what must they be going through? Oh, it can be so frustrating to take care of these patients. They're just right, they're, they're nebulous or on the borderline. And I, I, I know they could take so much work and it's not really clear. And this is another verbal judo thing is that empathy absorbs tension. Yeah. There's much more to it. Many more techniques. And I'm thinking all of it, they're all empathetic and they're all collaborative, you know, identifying the barriers. What can we do together to, to reduce the barriers? And then there's, of course, there are extreme measures like, calling on a recorded line, calling back on recorded line so that they're on the hook. That's my break glass in case of emergency move. Doesn't get you Christmas cards, but it does get things done, which sometimes you have to do. It's like, hey, this person's dying and let me just call you back on the transfer line so that we can get this fully sorted out. That right there, even though, you know, you're giving them a chance to recover, when you do get to that brinksmanship point of, hey, I'm going to call you back on a recorded line just so we can, you know, get to the bottom of this, that is going to be listening to win. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I was thinking listening to win is really great in a, in a formal debate where you're mm. looking for the problems in somebody's point of view. Mm. And, and the forum is for this, right? You've set up the relational dynamic where you are having an argument. The goal of this conversation is an argument that your goal is to win. I think that's a very rare occurrence for most of us. The problem is we misinterpret most of our conversations, which are really negotiations as debates. So how do we view the antibiotic conversation as a negotiation instead of a debate? And for me, it's, I need to loosen my grasp very slightly on the idea that I can never give an unnecessary antibiotic. As soon as I've just let go of that a little bit, it lets me open into the conversation with the goal of negotiating the best outcome for both of us. And negotiating is not finding a compromise. It's finding an optimized solution. Chris Voss tells this great story, which is a compromise is, you know, you're arguing with your significant other about whether you're going to wear the black shoes and the brown shoes, and you wear one brown shoe and one black shoe. That's a compromise. It's usually bad for everyone. And so optimize is coming up with a whole new solution where you're like, hey, I'm going to go with the Hawaiian shirt and sneakers. How's that? Oh, yeah, that's really fun. It's not the brown or black. It's something that optimizes the, the outcome for everybody. 
So if we're truly listening to understand, to have this optimized outcome, getting to that point, that external measure of, yep, that's right. Yep. You've got it exactly right. Or whatever the phrasing is. Truly, truly we've understood. And I'm wondering how is it even possible that we could even judge our understanding? Because we think that, oh yeah, totally get this guy. I mean, is that even possible? Well, that's why I really like the, that's exactly right as the goal. The, the understanding, it's our work, but only they can decide if it's happened or not. I'm throwing around a lot of great quotes right now. The biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it's taken place. We give ourselves the illusion that we have understood because it's easy for us. And so we kind of nod our head instead of trying to confirm and instead of validating that we heard and having them explicitly validate that. And usually this is like one or two extra extra statements in a conversation. So the difference is I talked to that patient. She said, I need an antibiotic. And if I had just said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, we would have moved on to the history and physical and she would have, then we would have had the argument at the end of this. I would have thought I understood her and she would not have felt heard. It was only one more step for me to say, well, why do you feel like you need an antibiotic? And her to give me the answer about her and her husband's trip. And for me to say, wow, it sounds like you're nervous that you're going to get people sick on that trip because you're still coughing. Then when she says that's exactly right. So it's usually one or two more statements is all it takes to get to that end point. And I think you, you just persevere with the goal of getting to that's exactly right until they say it. And sometimes that's three. Every time they get to correct you, it's an opportunity to narrow the hierarchical gap between the physician and the patient in a way that opens the conversation. I have to ask about your optimized solution. This, Listeners, well, I'm not going to apologize because this has sort of been like a, a grand story arc on the podcast this year is giving antibiotics for a viral URI. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that it was going to. But using this as a case study, how it would play out, you know, say like, okay, I need to loosen my grip a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that, so, that for that person, you might say, all right, well, whatever in the end, all right, I'll write you for it because this has been such like a pain in my neck that you keep pestering me and you're not we're not really having a meeting of the minds here and I, uh-huh. I don't have time to uh-huh. keep going. Or does that optimized solution actually mean your optimized solution? Well, I have to say a the most common optimized solution is the patient learns something new, which is that the thing that honestly they have been told for their whole lives, which is if you are sick in a certain way, if your sputum is green, if you're coughing for more than 10 days, you need an antibiotic. So they, they were taught something that led them to this stage. And if I can open them up to learning, the best solution is they learn something new that doesn't just help them today, but it helps them avoid future unnecessary visits in the future. So that's the best solution. I maybe won't get them that far. And so maybe I can only get them as far as a delayed antibiotic prescription, which we know almost nobody fills right? So that looks like, you know, right now I think you're safe and you can go home without an antibiotic. And this was another patient I had recently at an urgent care. And he said, yeah, but I have this trip coming up and I'm going to be hiking in a remote region of Scotland. And I'm worried because in the past, sometimes this has turned into like a pneumonia and 
I won't have access to healthcare. And I'm like, all right, well, let me give you a prescription for antibiotics and you can pick them up and bring them on your trip. And if you feel you're getting pneumonia because you're getting worse, here you go, right? Do I feel badly about that prescription? I really don't. The data is that patients who get these delayed antibiotic prescriptions, whether it's for otitis media or for you know bronchial infections, their fill rate is really low. It's way lower than if we give them the prescription now. And I believe at least that we have taught them that they can wait longer. And so next time they're less likely to come earlier. And one of the things that my wife, who's a family physician, has taught me is that in the ER, we have this perception that today's visit is the most important healthcare intervention they will ever have in their life. And as a family doc, you don't believe that. You believe that there's this long story arc to interactions with the healthcare system. And there's many opportunities for them to get antibiotics or not. And so if we move them a little bit towards not feeling that they need an antibiotic when they have a viral syndrome, then we've actually, we've taken a step. And I view that as actually a win. I want to get back to the specifics of listening and the idea of being present. Now you were talking about picking up their nonverbal cues, their tone, about all this stuff. The idea of being present, what you need to be to notice those things. Right. That gets bandied about, that term. And yeah, it's a worthy goal. And at times it's easier said than done. And as you are someone who is rarely without a strategy, I'm wondering how you would recommend operationalizing being present. For me, it's in this really interesting spectrum. Being present is in this really interesting spectrum of ideas, which I put under the heading of trying not to try. So if you are thinking about all of the things that you need to do in order to be present, you're not present, right? If you're, if you're thinking, oh, I, I really, I want to pay attention to this patient, but I need to go sign that EKG and I need to re return that phone call and got your list in your head of what your job as, as an emergency physician entails, then you can't be present. So to some extent, you have to do this paradox, which is you have to try not to try to be present and you just have to be. And so this is a hard thing for us as humans there are stages of learning. So the, the first stage of learning is trying to create the situation that makes it most likely that you'll be able to be present. And so for me, that is before I'm going to see my next patient, the more that I can do to clear my deck, the better. So we talked before about how I try to do the hard work of a chart in a patient's room before I leave. And that's because when I go into that next patient encounter, which is often unplanned and involves an interrupted time. So I'm in the middle of my chart and then another patient shows up. I can't leave that chart fully and be present for the next patient. So I really try to finish my last task fully before I go see that patient if possible. I had forgotten about this. Your first voice on this show was all about charting in the room and using the, the was it the Dragon app on your phone? Mm -hmm. Right. As you're saying all that, I, thinking about those moments, not just with patients, but even with family. And 
it is so important to be present if you want this to be effective communication. Right. And, you know, you kind of space out, you think about other things, and then you kind of legislate past things that have happened and all that stuff. And one thing I, I do, and it, this is straight from meditation, mindfulness, which is just basically being present. So in meditation, when a thought comes by, which that's what the mind does, the mind does thoughts bubble up, okay, acknowledge that thought, and then come back, come back. And I think I heard Tara Brock say that, like that's her message to self. Come back, just gently come back. And with patience, I would do that, that, you know, when you're thinking about, oh God, the EKG, is this consultant going to call? Oh, those thoughts are bubbling up. The exact, and that's why I found that meditating before a shift was so important. Mm. It allowed for that presence and it allowed for that almost like a reflex that, okay, come back. And then I would just silently, very quickly ask myself, am I listening? That was it. Come back. Am I listening? I had never even thought of how that was operationalized. That was how I operationalized being present and listening. Right. So I think we're hitting from two different sides. One is how do you even prepare? How do you get yourself ready so that you're more likely to succeed? And then you're talking about the path to expertise involves, a lot of people say experts make just as many mistakes as other people, but they recover faster. And so what I'm hearing is, you know, you developed a way to recover that worked for you, even though you make the same amount of mistakes. And in this case, I'm using the word mistake, but it's really your mind wanders too. The ED is a, a very noisy, complicated environment. And so maybe part of it is giving yourself a little bit of grace to say, hey, it's normal for my mind to wander a little bit, but I can come back from that. I love that you said it's not a mistake. It just is. As a human being, you can't not have that thought about the EKG pop up. It just does. And if you can have a method to not, I wouldn't even say recover, but I would say come back. Maybe that's the word. How would you respond to the pushback? And this might even be lame pushback. Hey, I'm here to rule out life threats. I don't need to invest in all this mumbo jumbo nonsense. I was going to say new agey and balderdashian unicornish claptrap, but mumbo jumbo nonsense. I don't know. Is that valid pushback? Did I sell it? You're thinking, how do we balance? How, how do we hold intention? The most important part of our job, which is making sure the patient is safe with this other part of our job. Yes. Thank you. You said so much better. And I actually, I'll just ask, you know, is it possible that those two things are both equally important? And we, we're hired for two jobs by our patient. One is to understand what drove them to come to the department. And the other one is to make sure that they're safe the best we can. I'll just make the point that we get great training in the let's make them safe. In fact, how many of the CT NGOs that you've done in the last couple of years have actually shown an aortic dissection? I'm saying that because we put a lot of energy into the let's make it safe for the patient side. And yet rarely actually do we find that life-threatening diagnosis. And so my whole proposal is that both of these things are equally important and we need to pay attention to both of them. The other piece of it is if we listen to our patients really well, sometimes we don't have to do those low yield tests because oftentimes we're helping ourselves in those moments. And it's actually in conflict with what the patient wants. 
a lot of times when I ask the patient, you know, I get the first couple sentences of their complaint and I say, so what's most important to you right now? A lot of times they say, look, if your test came back, okay, just get me out of here. I've been here six hours. And it would be a mistake in those moments to say, oh, well, this atypical chest pain, now I need to do a CT angiogram. I, I can talk about it with them and say, well, there's this one other test. I'm thinking it's pretty unlikely to help you, but I haven't ruled that out. And it sounds like you're telling me that you just want to get out of here. And they'll say, yep. And all of a sudden, I saved a ton of time, money, and unnecessary energy not doing that test. The other piece of it is I did have a patient who bounced back from kidney stone pain who I said, you know, help me understand what you want to make sure you get out of this appointment. And he said, well, my dad had an aortic dissection, and I don't think that they told me that I didn't have one. And that was the patient who had an aortic dissection and it wasn't even on my differential. Oh right? my gosh. So by taking that extra effort to really understand what's on their mind, sometimes we realize we don't need to do things. And sometimes we get just such a gem dropped in our lap that they haven't told us about for whatever reason. We've had quite a bit on logic and emotion on the show in the past few months. And, you know, the episode in the Spock Retreat, the newsletter that we have referenced several times. Listeners, if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, what are you waiting for? Come on. So it's actually about a third of the listenership is subscribed to the newsletter, which is like, whoa, awesome. The, re the rest of you guys, you're, you're missing out. I don't know if this newsletter will come out beforehand. I'm putting out a newsletter on how I finally conquered email. I did it, Ron. I did it. I conquered it. Nice. Conquered. Oh, feels so good. Anyway, <laughs> so we've had a lot on logic and emotion. And it all comes down to this tendency that we have to double down on the facts when we're met by emotion. And even when we know that answering feelings with facts is not the most effective approach, it doesn't stop us. We still do it. How do you teach this? The problem is that we were trained as physicians in the giving of facts. And we also get afraid when we see strong emotion. So the problem with bringing out facts is that it's the wrong treatment, right? It's the antibiotic for the viral cough, so to speak. The first thing to do is just get that emotion is driving this moment and get that it is emotion that is on the table. Acknowledge it, right? Try to identify the emotion. So we're actually not that great at telling what the emotion is that the other person is displaying. For example, if they are higher in a hierarchy than we are, their frustration, we interpret as anger. I remember my dad being angry a lot as a kid, and he would say, I'm, I'm not an angry person. I was frustrated a lot. So that's a normal thing that we actually misinterpret other people's emotions. So when we try to identify them, we end up being more correct, right? So if somebody's displaying a lot of emotion, they're upset. We try to identify that emotion but with a guess. It looks like they're angry and they might correct us. No, I'm frustrated. Great. Now we've identified that we have the right emotion. Then we want to validate that. Of course you're angry. Of course you're frustrated. I mean, you know, you've been, you've been waiting a long time for your hospital bed upstairs. That would be frustrating for me too. And then you can just offer to explore that. Do you want to talk more about that? You know, what would help you right now? The little mnemonic that we teach is give, G-I-V-E, get that it's emotion, identify the emotion, validate, acknowledge that that's a normal reaction to this situation, and then 
offer to explore it with them if they want. Uh, so that's how we teach it. But the real, for me, the real key is actually just stopping myself from giving facts when I see a strong emotion. And the perfect example of this is somebody's anxious about a procedure, a spinal tap. I'm going to do a lumbar puncture. I'm worried about your fever and your headache and your neck pain. And they say something like, have you done this before? Right? The mistake there is answering that with, yes, I've done this 500 times. And only, exactly. I'm thinking of the number, the, right? the fabricated number would always come up. It's kind of like, yeah. oh, how many times have I done this? I don't know, I don't, 500, 1,000? I don't know. And we do that because we think giving them the number will make them feel better. It comes from a good place, right? The thing to do in that moment is to identify that. Wow, it looks like you're a little bit nervous about this procedure. Identify that that question is actually a display of emotion. Mm. What, what do you think about this? This is from another negotiation technique. This was from the Harvard negotiation mm -hmm. school or, or project. This was um, when you're in these situations, these emotive situations, to avoid you language. Mm. It's at least when you're saying no. And so I don't know if it's fully analogous. So when you're saying no to something, you're saying no to the question, not the person. Right. And because when you say you, when someone says you, I think immediately you have a natural defense come up. Right. You can't even control it. But when you say the, right. it's kind of disarming. So what I would like to say in those situations, rather than I see that you're, you're frustrated, that's all chips down. And then I'm not frustrated. What I would say is I'm sensing frustration mm. or I'm sensing some anxiety, what's going on, rather than I'm sensing that you're anxious because mm. then that is judgmental versus I'm sensing some anxiety. I feel more discerning. I love it. I think that's an upgrade. I got a setnik upgrade. Uh, yeah, no, I think that is an upgrade. I, I think maybe a, a different conversation around this negotiation idea. Strong suggestion on Chris Voss's book. He has some just amazing tips. I kind of think that the idea of naming the emotion, but separating it from the person is, is a really great idea because it's not all that they are, right? There right. is frustration, right. but they are a person and who's in this situation. And so I think it's like trying to take their ideas and move it away from them and then examine them. You also want to take their emotion and move it away from them and examine the emotion as well. You are not your thoughts, right? but you can become fused with your thought. Your thought can become fused with you. So I love that. Like yeah. you are helping them. So this upgrade and combining it all helps to create a little psychological distance. A little psychological distance, which allows people to move away from the idea more strongly. There's this idea called reactance, which is the uncomfortable sense that we're being pushed in a certain direction that causes us to have to push back, right? So that's just a feeling that we get that somebody's trying to lead us in a certain direction. And the natural response to that is to push back against them leading us. If we can instead separate ourselves from our thoughts and our, and our emotions, and we can both examine them together, then we don't experience that reactance because it's not about changing me, it's about changing that emotion. I want to finish up with a term that I hear a lot. And in the context of what we discussed today, I wonder what it means or if it's actually important. And that is active listening. You know, you are actively listening. And maybe that's what we're talking about. 
What is the difference between that active listening and just listening? So I think active listening is a part of this, but it's not quite enough. What these modifiers on the word listening do is they drive us to do something different. And so active listening means somebody's talking. And instead of just being passive, I'm leaning in. So I'm paying attention to them. I'm looking at their body posture. I'm leaning forward. I'm not uh, crossing my arms and leaning back against a counter. I'm sitting down and leaning forward and paying attention to them. And then as a part of the listening, I'm doing something to try to confirm that I heard them. So this might be reflecting, you know, might be saying what they just said. The reason why I don't think active listening is enough is because active listening doesn't force you to involve the emotional paying attention as well. So usually active listening, you're rephrasing what the person said. I would like to make that a little better by adding to it if you can incorporate the emotion behind what they said as well, behind the content, so it's both content and emotion, this is sometimes called empathic listening. When I reflect, I include the emotion. So it's something like, so I'm hearing you say that you have been coughing for three weeks and you're frustrated by it. So it's both the content and the emotion behind it. You do that the best when you don't use any of the words that they used. So if you force yourself to say what they said without any of the words that they used, then you, you have to internalize it in that process. And so I think active listening, it's a great start, but you want to include these other two parts, which are include the emotion and don't use any of the words that they use. And that forces you to up your game in terms of leaning into making sure you're understanding them. Listen to understand and get to that point where the person communicates to you that you got it. That's exactly right. Oh, nailed it. Stuck the landing. Lon, it is always such a treat to not only chat with you, but have you on the show. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next time. That was great to catch up. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching, to get complete show notes for this or any other episode, sign up for our newsletter, and find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Maybe not, maybe it's happening. Just head over to our website, roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.